Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Our text today is going to be taken from the reading we heard in the Gospel of John. You may be seated. And we begin with the word of prayer. Mighty Father, we, grant, uh, we give you thanks this day uh, that you have loved us so much that you sent your only Son into this world to be our Savior. And Lord, today we come before you boasting of so many things and needing to repent of our pride. And so Lord, we pray you would take our pride away from us and help us to cling to nothing but Jesus. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. The more I study the Bible, the more I find myself uh, constantly being drawn back to one particular passage um, from St. Paul in 1 Corinthians when he writes these words. For God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. To me, these are, these are fascinating verses because they're the sort of verses that really sort of take us off of our equilibrium. They, they really throw us for a loop when we hear verses like this. There's all these things in this world that we love to boast about. There's all these things, we, you might say, that, that we take glory in, that we are excited about, that fill us with pride. And verses like this say God is not all that impressed with those things. God doesn't look for the things that we boast about. God looks for the weak and the foolish things of this world. God doesn't save the deserving he saves sinners. Just think about the way he does his work to save us. He doesn't do so with a big flashy show. He doesn't come and, and sweep us off of our feet with all kinds of incredible fireworks and performances and all of this. In order to save us, he sends his son to die on a bloody cross. God's thoughts and ways are very different from our thoughts and our ways. Which means that when we go before God, we really have nothing to boast about. We cannot bring anything that we think is very impressive before God because God does not glory in the impressive things of this world. He doesn't choose to save us because of anything we take pride in. The only thing we really have to boast of in this world is Jesus Christ and what He has done for our sake and for our salvation. Again, this is a sort of idea that kind of throws us for a loop, and it's always hard for us to wrap our minds around it. It was certainly hard for Nicodemus to try and figure out what this sort of stuff meant as he had that encounter with Jesus that one particular evening that we read about in John's Gospel today. Now, we're going to talk a little bit here about Nicodemus in a second, but just to bring you up to speed, throughout this Lenten season, we're working through a sermon series that we're calling Encounters with Jesus. And we're looking at a variety of encounters that Jesus has in his ministry with a variety of kinds of people. And we're seeing what happens when people in particular circumstances encounter Jesus. Last week, we saw what happened when Satan, uh, Satan encountered Jesus. How he was forced to be silenced and flee from the presence of Christ. Today, what we're going to look at is what happens when someone like Nicodemus, someone who in this world has a great deal to boast about, encounters Jesus. The real question is, what happens when we encounter Jesus in our pride? What happens to our pride? Now, I don't know if Nicodemus himself was a particularly proud man. I don't know much about him uh, personally. But I do know this. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. 
And the Pharisees were people in Jesus' day who had a great deal to boast about there in the culture. They were people that everybody else looked up to, and they were themselves, if we can understand the Scriptures properly, didn't mind being looked up to. They had something to boast about. They had pride. After all, they were very well-educated men. These were people who had gone through the best schooling in the schools of the Scriptures, in the Torah. They knew the Bible backwards and forwards, and it was their job to teach this Word to the other people. And in their teaching, they loved to show off their knowledge. They could boast about how much they knew. They could boast of their intelligence before the world. And again, it was, it was wisdom, it was knowledge about the Word itself. So that not only were they... Um, really well versed in what the text said, they were also supposed to be experts in doing what the text commanded. And if you look at the record of the Pharisees, at least if we can understand them from the perspective of the Gospels, when, when Jesus talked about them, the Pharisees had no problem talking about how good they were at their works. For example, when they would give to the poor, they liked to make a show of it. They would get their, you know, we've talked about this before, they would get their Instagram page out and take pictures of all the kind works that they were doing. And this was an example for everybody else. So they could see what sort of good works they ought to do. The Pharisees could boast in their morality. And of course, this was a morality shaped by the Word of God, they would say. And so they could boast not just of the good works they do, but how religious they are. They were experts on the law. They knew how to exercise their faith, and they would show this off. For example, when it was time to pray, they would stand in the streets, and they would pray loudly, pray beautifully, pray, you know, sermons for everyone else to hear, talking more to the people than necessarily to God. When they would fast, they would make a big show of just how much they were starving for Jesus and just how good they were at it. And if you really wanted to fast, you did it like the Pharisees. So here was a group of people in Jesus' day, religious leaders who could boast of their knowledge, they could boast of their morality, they could boast of their religious practices, and everybody looked up to them. And so Nicodemus comes before Jesus tonight as one of these proud Pharisees. He brings all of this with him. And what we find is that Jesus, he's not impressed. Pride seems to be thrown away when it encounters Jesus. The things that we boast in in our lives, because let's be honest, guys, if you're a faithful churchgoer, the temptation to be like a Pharisee is very real. We love to boast in what we know as Christians. We love to boast in how we're doing better than the world out there. We love to show off our religion. This is a great temptation for us. And don't get me wrong, knowing the Word of God, uh, going to church, working hard to do good works in this world, it's all good stuff. Of course it's good stuff. God's will. The problem is, is we take pride in it and we boast about it as though we've accomplished something. Well, you bring these things before Jesus and he's going to just take your pride away. And what we're going to see today is how he systematically does this with Nicodemus, how he takes away any ground of boasting that Nicodemus might have. And so Nicodemus comes to him at night, which is very interesting. Uh, because you don't want to show up with Jesus in the day. That would ruin your reputation. Uh, so Jesus goes to him, or Nicodemus goes to Jesus at night, and the first thing he does is shows Nicodemus what he knows. He says, Rabbi, we know. So I'm the expert here, Jesus. We know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs you do 
unless God is with him. And I just imagine Jesus sitting there going, oh, well, thank you for noticing, Pharisee. That's very nice of you. Uh, <laughs> Nicodemus is coming to Jesus and saying, look, I know a lot about God. I'm kind of, I don't want to brag, but I, oh, I do want to brag. I'm the expert of God around here. And I notice the things you're doing here seem to be from God, but I don't quite know what to do with you. So why don't you fill in the blanks for me so I can continue on being the expert? Now, Nicodemus does come off to me here a, a little bit proud. But I'll be honest with you, I've, I tend to find that in a lot of conversations I have with people about God, we all sound a lot like Nicodemus, because everybody thinks they're an expert on God, whether you're a, a pastor who pretends to be an expert on God, or whether you've never cracked a Bible in your life, you never go to church, everybody has perspectives and views on God, and everybody thinks they're right. So I'll have conversations where people will say, look, I'm no expert on the Bible, but I know this about God. We all seem to think we know something about him. We all think we, we've got some little part of him figured out. And sure, he's big and mysterious and beyond comprehension, but I can say at least this much about God. Even atheists think they've got God figured out. They just don't think he's real. But everybody comes thinking that they have something to boast about in their knowledge. And this is really part of our DNA as our culture. We are a very knowledgeable culture. We're a very smart people. We have more intelligence at our fingertips than people have had throughout the history of the world. So that even if we ourselves are not personally smart, we've got a phone in our pocket that gives us everything we need to know. We love to be smart. We love to be in the know. And so that when we're there, we love to boast about it. And this is especially true when it comes to how we speak about God. And Jesus, again, he's not impressed with our knowledge. He looks at Nicodemus and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, he's saying, listen, Nicodemus, you're coming before me boasting of what you know, but unless God gives you a new birth, unless you are born again, unless somebody comes down from heaven and tells you the truth about God, you know nothing about God. Unless it is revealed to you in the Word of God, you have no basis for any claims to any knowledge. You will never find God in your intelligence. You will never find God in your own head. You will only and always find God in his word. You cannot know God apart from his word. So you can't come before Jesus or before anyone else saying you know everything or anything about God unless you're coming with what he has given you already in his word. You don't know what you think you know, Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is baffled by it. He's not quite sure what to do. And so I love this move. Nicodemus tries to catch Jesus in his own illustration. He tries to catch him in the absurdity of what he just said. Nicodemus looks at Jesus and is like, uh, born again? How can a man be born again when he is old? He can't enter a second time into his mother's womb. Jesus, this illustration you're using is an impossibility. Old men have been born once, and that seemed like enough. Besides, you can't remake the birthing process. Moms aren't signing up for this thing. This work you just laid out, Jesus is virtually impossible. Of course I have to work to get into the kingdom of God and to gain the right knowledge, but what you have just said is impossible for anyone to do. 
And that is exactly the point. With these words, Jesus takes away our ability to work our way to God. He takes away any sort of pride we might have in ourselves and our own performance. This language of being born again is, 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 a, is a use of language that has been, I think, much maligned in the, the sort of its common uses, usage in American Christianity. I don't hear this language as much as I used to, but you used to hear people talk this way, where they said, if you want to be saved, you must be born again. Are you a born-again Christian? Have you been born again? And the idea here was that if you want to be born again, you need to go do that. You need to go find that birth or work that birth by saying a prayer or making a decision for Jesus or exercising your free will so that you can achieve this second birth. But that whole line of thinking is completely wrong. It completely undermines what Jesus says here. The whole point of the illustration is that you can't do this on your own. You have as much say in your second birth as you had in your first birth. Ask your mom. You did none of the work. Someone else did everything. You were simply given life. Now Jesus looks at Nicodemus who wants to boast in his performance, looks at you and I who love to talk about how good we are at stuff, and Jesus says, look, just like the first birth you had nothing to do with, the second birth is the work of someone else. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You don't get to work your way into the kingdom of God. It's the Holy Spirit's work to bring you there. And he will bring you there when he wills and where he wills and how he wills. It is his will, not your will. And that one not only wrecks Nicodemus, that one throws all of us for a loop. Because if there's one thing we idolize in our lives, it is control. We work for control. We want to be in charge, and we certainly want to be in charge of something as serious and as important as our eternal life. And Jesus here says, you have no say in that whatsoever. That's the work of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this makes us very nervous because we can't control it. How do we know we can get it? We think, if I can't control that, how do I know I'm saved? Shouldn't it be up to me on some level? Isn't there something I must do? Some, again, some decision I must make? Some, some work I must perform? Some prayer I must pray? And Jesus just says no. The Spirit blows like the wind, when and where He wills. But notice also what He says. Where does the Spirit will to work? In the water, the new birth that comes in the water, holy baptism. He does his work when and where he wills, and he wills to do his work in baptism, which isn't your work at all, but it's a gift that God gave to you. Think of this when it comes to someone who can boast of great faith. If we're thinking of like a picture of the greatest saint, like, if we're looking for a picture of what the ideal saint looks like in the church, what do we tend to think of? We think of Mother Teresa. 
right? Or we think of uh, some great grandparent or some uh, uh, example in our lives of somebody who did all of these wonderful things, and we look at them and we go, that is a great saint. But do you want to know what the best picture of a saint is in the church? It's a crying baby at the waters of baptism. Because somebody else had to bring them. They did nothing but squirm and and cry and, and look very terrified at me when I put their head over the water. And then they got their heads wet. And they did nothing. And the Holy Spirit was there doing everything. That's what Jesus is getting at. Entering into the kingdom of God is the gift of the Holy Spirit worked in the waters of baptism. All by His will, or another way of saying that, is all by grace alone. And so pride is removed. You have nothing to boast. Which at this point, Nicodemus has got nothing. Nicodemus in the text is, is so fun. He, he's completely flummoxed. He comes talking, and then he's got some questions, and now he's just doing this. He says, how can these things be? And I sometimes wonder if Jesus is saying that, or if Nicodemus is saying that looking at Jesus, or if he's staring at his feet going, I just, I got what in the world? I got nothing. He's starting to wake up to a shocking reality that he cannot boast of anything about himself before God, nor earn anything from God. And this is quite a harsh realization for someone whose career is to be the religious model of righteousness to the community. Again, Nicodemus was a guy who knew the law. Not only do the Pharisees know the law, they know the law backwards and forwards, and they've created laws to exist around the laws to prevent you from breaking the laws uh, so that you don't get to extra trouble. They've got laws upon laws upon laws. And they know how to do all of it. So Nicodemus is beginning to realize that none of that does me any good before God. You could be an expert on the Scriptures. You can be uh, the model of religious obedience. You could have perfect church attendance, get to every Bible study, have your daily prayers in order, and you could show that off before everyone else. And these are all good things, to be sure. They're taken away by Jesus when they become your ground of righteousness. You start to boast in the gift that you have received as though you've done it. And so now Jesus finally gets down to it and he just silences Nicodemus. He says, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? All the pride is out the window right there. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him oh, may have eternal life. Jesus says, look, you, you religious experts, you who take all your pride in all that you do, let me just go ahead and do you a favor, says Jesus, and take your pride away from you. You cannot bring me anything that I have not already given you. You cannot find God or His kingdom by searching out knowledge or working really hard or or having all of this religiosity that you boast of. All of it, if you want to bring it before me for your righteousness, says Jesus, is a pile of filthy rags. The only hope that any of us have, the only hope that you and I have, and the only thing that we can really boast in at all is this, that God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. That God saves the foolish, the unrighteous, the sinners of the world. 
The only hope that we have, as Jesus says to us here, is to believe. And really, that's probably not a clean way of saying it. The only thing we can believe in here is Jesus. The only place your faith can look for any hope before God is the foolishness of that cross. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For you and for me and a guy like Nicodemus, this is our only hope. This is our only salvation. All we can boast in is Jesus Christ alone. But take heart, dear friend, because boast you can. But this is what Jesus has done for you. He has taken your pride away. He has died to forgive your proud knowledge, your self-serving good works, and your religious performance. All you have is Jesus. And Jesus has you by His grace alone. And you know, I like to think that He had Nicodemus too. It's interesting to see if you read throughout the rest of John's Gospel, you will encounter Nicodemus twice more in this book. Once, you'll see the Pharisees arguing about what they're supposed to do with Jesus, and, and Nicodemus actually kind of a little bit stands up for Jesus, trying to sort of defend him. But then the last time you see Nicodemus is really powerful. It's at the cross, standing beneath the shadow of the crucified Lord, taking his corpse off of that tree. And there we see something wonderful. For there Nicodemus was finally made foolish. Because there he finally had Jesus crucified. Amen. We pray. Almighty Father, we give you thanks for the mercy that you have shown us. For we are the foolish and the weak things in this world, Lord. We are sinners. But God, you are a God who saves sinners. You are so gracious and kind that you have sent us Jesus to be our Lord. Now, Lord, give us faith to trust in him that we would know nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and He would be our boast all the day. Amen.